Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. By any means necessary, if the when Napoleon laid Boulogne for a year. Zachary Davis. Jim Redfin. Benjamin Jacobs. I'm Eric Marcus. Dan McManamy. Cyanide. Three. Rudyard Winch. Susan Archery. Alex Clifford. B.T. Newberg. I'm David Crowther. And I, Liz Covard, will be speaking alongside 40 other great content creators. This will be an event that you don't want to miss. Intelligent Speech is back. Intelligent Speech is an online conference dedicated to connecting the best independent educational content creators with their listeners. This year's Intelligent Speech Conference will be held on Saturday, April 24th, starting at 10 a.m. Eastern Time, or, for our friends across the Atlantic, 3 p.m. London Time. Tickets will be $30, but are available for only $20 as an early bird special. You can get them online at intelligentspeechconference.com slash shop. This podcast is a Royfield Brown production. Find others on iTunes. All right. Yeah, I know. Ladies and gentlemen, please remain standing for the singing of our national anthem. Let's get Brexit done. My administration has accomplished more than almost any administration in the history of our country. Hello and welcome to Mid-Atlantic, the show where we look at the news and the views from one side of the Atlantic from the perspective of the other. I'm Royfield Brown, who's in a really bloody sunny Bay Area. Big up to the East Bay. Uh, today we are joined by Laura Babcock, TV pundit in Hamilton in Canada, Eric Marcus of the Making Gay History podcast in New York. We could be, should be joined by Paul Dudridge, who describes himself as more right-wing than Margaret Thatcher. He's in Los Angeles. We have Marseille Butler from the Esoteric Negro podcast in L.A., we are joined also by Laura Mitchell, the author of The Diary of a Young Black Girl, who's in Miami in Florida. Now, who have I forgotten? Ab, where are you, sir? I'm in Dallas, Texas. I work as a data, basically doing data management and mainframe development. Fantastic. In a week that has seen Sir Lewis Hamilton prove that not only is he the fastest man in formula one but a man of principle we ask just what has joe biden accomplished in his first 100 days it's big yes 
is bold, yes. And we can get it done. President Biden rolling out the next phase of his economic plan this week in Pittsburgh. It's a once in a generation investment in America, unlike anything we've seen or done. The president's proposal includes $620 billion for transportation infrastructure, at least $650 billion to expand broadband and invest in clean water and green energy, upgrading homes and schools, $400 billion for home and community-based care for the elderly and disabled, and $580 billion for research and workforce development. Former President Trump and congressional Republicans left a bipartisan deal on the table turning promises on infrastructure into a long-running joke. The American people deserve the best infrastructure anywhere in the world. We will create the infrastructure of the future. We call it Infrastructure Week. We're actually at the end of what the president called Infrastructure Week. Last week was a great week. It was Infrastructure Week. How many times have we heard this is, this is Infrastructure Week of the last four years? Now Biden is determined to push a bill through over Republican opposition. I'm gonna fight them every step of the way because I think this is the wrong prescription for America. Paying for his plan by primarily raising the corporate tax rate from 21 to 28%. It seems less about infrastructure, more about tax increases. A big whopping tax increase. Joe Biden wants to come along and jack up taxes. Still, Biden is counting on the fact that public works projects are popular back home. Joe Biden entered the White House with an extensive agenda that includes taming the coronavirus, economic recovery, climate policy and reducing the power of tech companies. So far, it's so good. As Biden's approval rating on the economic recovery soars to a massive 62%, his overall approval rating is at 55%. How much of Biden's approval rating is down to the fact that he just isn't Donald Trump? Eric Marcus, let's start with you. You know, um, I think you make a good point there. Um, I just remember when Obama was given the uh, the Nobel Prize after he became president. It was, I think, in no small part because he wasn't George Bush. Um, but I think we have to give a lot of credit to uh, Joe Biden for surprising everybody in how much he's accomplished and how quickly he's done it. I think he's more than earned the 55% basic number. And then you look at the poll numbers about specific things he's done. They are just fantastic, 60s and 70s. Um, I was not a Biden supporter. I was disappointed when my guy didn't didn't uh, come didn't make it, and um, or my gal. I had multiple <laughs> multiple choices, but he's been um, incredibly impressive. Uh, Marseille isn't Joe Biden just a warmed up old corpse? That's what the right say, and you know, but he can't even walk up the uh, steps to Air Force One. He's an old man. He's a shell of, of a chief executive. Uh, any kind of approval and wing that he has un- underneath his sails is just down to the fact that we have a compliant media. I think that that that, that tripping incident was so sad to see people kind of be like, see, there he is. He can't even, you know, walk up uh, the steps. But I'm a clumsy person. So I just thought that was, um, first of all, to say that was a silly criticism. Um, he is, I think, indicative of, of something that we need to maybe work on going forward as to maybe having an age limit on public service and on in some of these positions in our government. But again, um, I still think that we're in triage and I think that he's done pretty good. Uh, even though, like Eric said, he, he's not, he was not by any means my candidate. Uh, I, you know, if it wasn't for Trump, I was dragged to the polls kicking and screaming 
because I did not want to vote for Joe Biden. Um, but he has introduced a couple of things that I'm really interested to see how it plays out. Um, I know Josephine was talking about, not to derail, but she was talking about uh, caretakers. I know that he is really interested in raising the wage for caretakers, in, in-home care workers, because they do make a very, very low wage. And there's a lot of restrictions on how many hours they can work and how much the government pays for that. So I'm hoping that that gets fixed going forward because there's so many people that um, are left with, and I don't want to say burden or left with the responsibility of leaving their own employment to take care of loved ones. And um, it's become a, a huge problem and it's going to be a bigger problem in the future. So, Ab, President Joe Biden has assembled the most diverse cabinet ever. Other than just this cabinet looks like America, what does this potentially tell us about his future agenda? Well, I think, to me, the the diversity in his cabinet and in his positions kind of um, are in many ways a very stark contrast to what we saw with the uh, Trump administration, and I, I guess it's more reflective of the uh, of the America that I guess the Democrats envision. Um, and also, I think that you know having you know the amount of diversity, the different you know schools of thought and all that kind of stuff. I think it kind of shows that maybe there is some merit to um there is merit to uh all the diversity inclusion initiatives that have been pushed by a lot of companies and corporations i know some people um in this country are feeling like it's forced uh, you know it's just uh but i i think that you know um i gotta give him credit you know he didn't have to but he did and it seems like he's kind of uh kind of surprised us all and um also, real quick, I think uh, one thing to point out, Joe Biden is only four years older than Donald Trump. So I think that even like the criticisms about the age are maybe a little a little much considering the fact that him and Trump had Trump been elected, uh, reelected, I, su- I should say, um, they're really not that different in age. So maybe people are, are uh, kind of, you know, piling on. I've never been able to understand the reason why uh, people say uh, Biden is old for exactly that reason, but somehow um, that ju- that jibe seems to have stuck. Laura M in in Miami, are there any of Biden's cabinet picks that uh, you were uh, you are particularly excited about? Several, actually. Deb Halen is one of my favorite Biden um, cabinet picks that he picked. She is, of course, the first indigenous woman to be over the Department of Interior. And considering that that department works directly with native tribes on um, contracts that the country has set in place with them, sovereignty and um, and even like business um, considerations that involve native land. Uh, it's really exciting to see her over it. It's going to be interesting to see what she does with that. Um, I love Marsha Hudge, uh, Fudge over the housing department. Um, I know there was a lot of controversy. Many people wanted her to be over agriculture um, when he was making his picks, but I do love her being over housing. But I'll, I'll stick with those two for right now. Those two were very exciting. I also wanted to point out to a question you asked earlier. I think in part because he has such a diverse both cabinet and staff that that in part is um, contributing to uh, his focus and his policies on diversity and on many of these interests that are going into his economic policy, his infrastructure policy, 
and even the way he's rolling out the vaccine policy as well. Jared, you've been telling me for for weeks now that you're somewhat excited about Biden. You weren't exactly a Biden fan during uh, the uh, kind of presidential kind of kind of process, but he's turned out to be somewhat of a revelation. Tell the good listeners of this podcast, all five thousand of them that download this thing, the reason why Joe Biden could well be a transformational president. Sure. I mean, I was desperately wrong. I have no problem saying that I found him to be a totally uninspiring candidate. I thought it was just going to be business as usual. But truth of it is, just the COVID economic recovery bill that he got through is a complete transformation of how government has been functioning for the last 40 years. You know, for 40 years, we have existed in a paradigm where the idea is government should be as far from the business of people's lives as possible. And that's been manifested as not on anything and trying to constantly reduce, reduce, reduce. And the effect of it is what you saw leading in the, the, the coronavirus, the pandemic is a perfect example of it. Like it was a catastrophe at first because it's a government that has no idea how to do anything anymore. And just by throwing money at things, by addressing the fact that the root of all of this stuff tends to be economic, that's an, that's a massive transformation. If the transportation bill goes through, Again, that will be a huge change. We, will we see the effects immediately? Probably not, but in a couple of years, it's going to be a different country. President Joe Biden's infrastructure plan doesn't just attempt to fix America's crumbling bridges. Uh, the White House is also eyeing a second component that will include historic investments in everything from paid leave to community college. Um, how much is paid leave part of infrastructure. Laura Babcock. I think to the point of the conversation, Biden was underestimated because a lot of people thought that Biden as senator was, you know, a bit, a little bit foolish and gaff prone and everything else. But what we're seeing is a really senior statesman who's got a lot of experience in the White House and just on the Hill understanding how Washington works. And so he's been brilliant in pushing through that huge COVID relief And now this, the infrastructure bill, the Build Back Better, I mean, it's massive. It is going to be, I think, a game changer for America. And yes, it'd be great if they got the paid sick leave in. We've got that here in Canada at the federal level. But when you look at the age question you guys were discussing, I mean, I've always been on Team Biden-Harris the ticket because I knew that Biden would probably bring in younger, cooler people who are smarter than him. And he put Buttigieg, someone who I think a lot of us were inspired by during the presidential contest, in charge of a $2 trillion, you know, claim the future kind of bill, change everything infrastructure. And so they're throwing everything under this infrastructure bill. They're doing it while Biden's popular. He's made an incredible impact on the pandemic. I mean, in Canada, we're sitting here jealous that you got that Biden is saying all Americans are going to have access by the middle of this month. We're looking at September. So Biden has come in like a like, you know, like a force of nature. And I think he surprised a lot of people. But Putting smarter people like Buttigieg, younger people on the front of these massive, massive uh, projects is, is, is smart. And I think that Biden might be way more consequential than anyone could have imagined even six months ago. 
Um, Ab, so far, Joe Biden hasn't been weighed down by the border crisis. Is the media just turning a blind eye to problems there? I would have to say yes. I think for many of us, and, and, and I frankly can only speak for myself in, in saying that I'm, I'm kind of disappointed, but there was this assumption that, you know, the um, atrocities happening at the border were more so a function of the Trump administration and their just draconian ways. But um, it, it's a bit disappointing to see the, you know, the, even with the changing of the guard politically, that they're still not really doing anything to, you know, to get better at it. It's almost like people, kids are still in cages. People are still, um, there's still a crisis at the border and it doesn't seem like it's improving at the rate that is satisfactory to um, many people who are horrified by it. Eric, will this be the first bump in the road which really dents Biden's somewhat stellar reputation? No, I think, you know, let's look at how long he's been in office, how many weeks he's been in office. And it's, I think it's a little unfair to say that he hasn't, there aren't any changes. They're making every effort to improve the situation. They've opened up various sites to move the kids to. Um, we do know that this is the sort of thing that happens every year in terms of uh, in spring that the numbers rise dramatically, although this is a bigger rise than normal. Um, this is a long-term problem. It's got, not going to be solved quickly. And this administration is well-meaning in its efforts and is moving as quickly as it can. I don't think, I, I think this is the kind of thing that the Republicans are, are trying to make uh, uh, hay out of, and I don't think it's sticking. I don't, uh, I think people are willing to give uh, even if people are critical, they're willing to give give the current administration a little time. They've not even been in office 100 days, and look what's been accomplished. And also just to, uh, another point, that, that they've accomplished so much in a, sh- in a short amount of time, and we need to give them uh, credit for that. And that's in no small part because of Biden's past experience. Laura M. Uh, the vaccine rollout has, by most accounts, gone well so far, though there are some caveats. Two thirds of adults not yet having received a single dose and the distribution has been uneven, including along racial lines. How can we get more people and minorities to trust in the jab? Very good question. I know for myself and for my community, one of the biggest factors that is been involved in helping to ease people's doubts have been seeing people they know get the vaccine and having people of color. um, I'm African-American. So having people of color who are in the medical profession um, speak to us about the process for rolling out the vaccine, the process for making it, the clinical trials, and kind of easing a lot of the doubts. Now, in terms of the overall country, the the problem is that at the same time that COVID was spreading, so was a disinformation campaign about COVID. It's one of the reasons why in America you've seen some of the pushback um, around wearing masks, some of the pushback around social distancing. And then, of course, now that we have the vaccine, you see the same wave of fear, misinformation, and in some cases, ignorance around the vaccine. Um, It's because people aren't sure of how it got started, who did it, why it was so fast. And so I think having access in varying communities um, is important to making sure that everyone can get access to the vaccine. But beyond that, um, having people just sit down and explain to people that there was a whole team of doctors and um, epidemiologists who put together 
and pharmacists who put together the actual vaccine itself, that the reason why they were able to roll out with the vaccine so fast is because they use the samples that we had from a previous SARS vaccine that was being formulated to speed up the process of figuring out this particular vaccine. The fact that the clinical trials was done on a diverse set of people, not just norm to Caucasian Americans. And the fact that the vaccines so far have been found to be 95% effective, particularly in the Moderna vaccines, both in the clinical trials. And we're actually seeing a very similar effectiveness rate with actual needles and arms. I think it's at 90% effectiveness across the board in the people who've actually had the vaccine um, since the clinical trial. So explaining that to people, I think, goes a long way with assuaging a lot of the fears. Emma, in the UK, we have similar problems with minorities trusting the jab. Could you speak to some of the government's efforts and and minority celebrities speaking to that issue? Uh, Yeah, they've been really trying to um, do that kind of community outreach. Um, One of our biggest national treasures is a comedian called Lenny Henry, who uh, is black British. Um, And he has been kind of really leading um, the charge on just making sure that people within the black community, the Asian community, talking to each other, um, about its safety and that there's a lot of representation. So a lot of the advertising, um, they make a deliberate effort to make sure that that's really diverse and reflects the whole of Britain. It, it is really difficult because these are um, communities who've traditionally distrusted um, things like vaccines. But obviously for us to get to the level of herd immunity, particularly in a place like London, which is so diverse, uh, we need everyone to get the jabs in their arms. With 100 billion set aside for an internet plan, Biden commits to bringing down overpriced broadband bills. Eric, I know that sometimes you struggle in uh, metropolitan New York uh, with, with decent internet. How could this help transform and ignite the US economy? I was just listening to a news story about this this morning, and you're right, my, my West 20th Street in Chelsea internet is so bad, I'm on my mobile now, and uh, I, I have to use a hotspot most times. Um, certainly for meetings. Um, and that's here on West 20th Street. But the piece I heard this morning was about a rural area in upstate New York where they have to go out to a road far from their home and hold their, their phone up in the air to try to get a, a signal, um, which is appalling. So there are, I think they said there were 14 million people, and I'm betting it's a lot more, who don't have access to, to internet at all. And something I learned that was interesting to me that the FCC only requires that, that the internet providers state what... Uh, um, their advertised speeds are. So they charge, we pay a crazy amount of money for high-speed internet on West 20th Street. And it's it's based on their advertised numbers. But generally, we either get much slower service or no service at all. And they're not quick to uh, um, uh, to refund us the money. In fact, not at all. So I think it's an, it's it, it means that people will be able to live anywhere in the country and have access. And it's not just for business. Students who work remotely, and certainly during we've seen this during the, the pandemic, but there are students who always work remotely. They'll have access to the internet. I think this is brilliant, absolutely brilliant. Um, it's far more important than, to my mind, than upgrading the ro- the um, the interstate highway uh, system. Broadband is the highway of the present day and the future. It's essential. Marseille, Biden said this week that he's not going to solve the uh, the Palestinian and Israeli problem. How significant 
is that in terms of Americans position and policy towards the Middle East? That's a tough one. But I, I feel like, honestly, I don't think he can. I think, and this is just coming from a person on the outside of this that really hasn't thought about this particular issue in a while. I think that it's good for him to kind of take this middle ground approach, if you could call it that, to this particular situation, because Trump was so invested in appealing to the evangelical and the uh, side of this issue, and, and mostly for them, that I think it's good for him to to say that he's not going to be able to solve it, but still to be able to show, uh, I guess, continued solidarity with um, the Israeli government, because I know that that um, is still a, a huge issue for some people that we continue to to do that. But yeah, I don't think that America alone can solve that. Or I think that it is really time for us to fo- focus on domestic policy and issues. Uh, Jared, is one of the few kind of plaudits we can give the Trump administration is the fact that they manage through unconventional means to um, unblock uh, the sink in terms of Arab and Israeli relations. We have the UAE, Bahrain, uh, Morocco, etc., all now having formal diplomatic relations uh, with Israel. Isn't that one thing we can actually thank uh, the Trump administration for and Jared Kushner? And the Biden administration is just following in their wake. Yeah, but it, I think it would have to be a qualified thanks. I have a hard time seeing anything wrong in normalized diplomatic relations between anyone because it does seem to affect some things. But at the same time, <laughs> these are not savory regimes, you know. Um, yeah, but I, I mean, basically, yes, I, I thought they didn't. The Trump administration could never get credit for anything because 99% of the time they were such a catastrophe. But yeah, I, I when those relations were normalized, yeah. The only pushback I have is that I do think they deserve credit for establishing relationships. I do, however, want to note that a big part of those establishing those relationships were tied to business interests, not necessarily political interests. And I think that was one of the things that when they were establishing a lot of those relationships kept getting lost in the communication about them. Um, And so that's something that as we go forward, because even though we're under a new administration, I'm pretty certain many of, especially those private business interests are going to go forward. And I am interested to see how that plays out in the long run. Um, I, I tend to find that money makes for very strange bedfellows, and I get the feeling that's exactly what's going to happen with those relationships. Fair shout. Um, Ian, uh, we've dragged you up from uh, the audience to be on stage. We've all given Joe Biden somewhat of a qualified thumbs up in his first uh, 100 days in office. What's your impression on the uh, the new incumbent in the White House? 
So thank you very much for giving me the opportunity to join this uh, August group. Uh, I have a, a somewhat unique perspective because uh, I'm, I'm Canadian, but I'm living here in Los Angeles, California. I've lived for six years in London. Uh, and so, you know, kind of like to consider myself a global citizen. I actually have a couple of different passports. So that's part of the reason why I could live in those different places. And, you know, I'll put my cards on the table and say that I voted for Joe Biden and, and you know, unhesitatingly so. Um, but I, I've been really amazed at how much he's been able to accomplish in a short amount of time, as I think Laura, my fellow Canadian, uh, mentioned earlier. And, I, you know, I'm, I'm a student of history. I studied political science. I worked in Washington, D.C for six years as a congressional aide and press secretary. So I have a, a certain a certain kind of vantage point. And I was always searching for the, the kind of analogy that, that, that Joe Biden might uh, follow um, in his predecessors. And one of the ones that I alighted early upon was, was kind of George Bush Sr., uh, this transitional figure that was going to kind of carry us from one era to the next, from, you know, the kind of disastrous Trump era to hopefully a post-Trump era. But that, you know, by virtue of his age and his... Uh, his, you know, just the fact that he'd been on the scene for so long uh, was never going to be more than a transitional figure, but that, you know, he could still serve as a bridge the way George Bush Sr. did from, you know, the 20th to the 21st century to some degree, or at least from Reagan to Clinton. And uh, I've come around to actually thinking that even though I still think he's going to be probably a one term or one term and a half present, probably, I'm not wishing his death, but, you know, he's just, he's an older man. Uh, I think the better analogy right now is LBJ and uh, the Great Society. And I think that those four years that Lyndon Bates Johnson, um, you know, stood astride uh, the political system is probably not a, a, a false analogy in the sense that we have in this president, uh, a very accomplished legislator who has a very, uh, you know, specific sense of the moment in history as LBJ did, uh, has a, a facility with the, the process and the legislative kind of system. And he seems to be untroubled by a lot of the things that a lot of presidents uh, come to office with, like a big ego. You know, And this is, again, very in contrast with the way Biden presented himself uh, early on. You know, he, he's not making those gaffes that he was known for for his entire 40-year career. Uh, you know, we often uh, thought of Joe Biden as kind of a bit of a narcissist and who loved the stage and, and, and always made mistakes on the stage. He's been incredibly egoless in this in this aspect. And he's been methodical really from the, the first moment. And, and I'm harkening back all the way to prior to South Carolina. If you'll recall those early days when he came in third, fourth, or fifth in the early primaries, he was very much on message saying, wait till South Carolina, wait till South Carolina, we're going to win this thing, we're going to win this thing. And by and large, you know, thanks to uh, uh, Jim Clyburn, uh, he won South Carolina and then the presidency. But he's been on message since that moment. And he's been on message for the first, you know, 80 or so days constantly uh, under-promising, constantly over-delivering. And, you know, sitting here again from this vantage point in California, I feel to some degree like I've been transported into the future because, uh, and I'd be curious to hear what the other people in the room who may also live in California or in other parts of the States, uh, here in Los Angeles, the, the vaccination system has gone very well. I'm over the age of 50, but I got my vaccination, my first dose on the first day of eligibility for that. There was a lot of uh, supply uh, to meet the demand. And people have kind of really turned the corner in terms of uh, putting some of the pandemic behind us. Now, it could be a false dawn. I don't 
put, portray California in the same way that Texas or Florida is in, you know, kind of ostrich-like in their uh, obstinacy. But I do, there is a palpable sense that we're moving forward and moving onwards to a nearly normal and perhaps a new phase of this. Now, again, it could be a false dawn, but all of these things put together, I think Joe Biden has been remarkably on message, disciplined, uh, forward thinking. He's not thinking about politics so much as uh, making, getting stuff done. And he's swinging for the fences, which is something I can really appreciate. Laura. Well, I think he's right on in terms of the biggest change with Biden from the senator that we all, you know, the Joe we know to this president who's becoming quite consequential has been discipline. I think that he met the gravity of the moment. He got into the campaign because of what he saw in Charlottesville. He had a purpose from the beginning. He he kind of, you know, didn't do very well in the debates and everything turned around for him, as we know, in South Carolina. But since that point, he has surrounded himself with incredibly good communications. And not just because I think most of his team are female, but because they are just really good at keeping Joe on message and focused. And it seems as though he feels a sense of, He's got a sense of gravitas now. He's not interested in being folksy and connected. He's interested in actually saving America and fixing things. He seems to be more focused on actually seizing this moment in history, this this transformational moment. And I'll just end my point with when they were introducing this $2 trillion Build Back Better infrastructure bill, which pretty much has everything you could want thrown into it to really change America. He said, you know, this is the moment where we win the future. And that kind of language, that kind of focus, that kind of, you know, pivot for the country from the horrendous Trump years, I think it's significant. And watching it from, you know, just above the border here, we see a president that uh, might just be one of America's great presidents. We didn't think he had the intellectual capacity like Obama, and he didn't seem to have you know, the the communication chops of a Reagan in terms of igniting the world and, and being charming and all the rest of it. But he has found his moment. And I think sometimes the moment makes the man and Biden is being made by this. Emma is maybe one of the reasons why Joe Biden has been so successful so far is that because the last two incumbents of the White House actually didn't do politics. Barack Obama famously didn't w- take senators out for a drink and, and, and have lunch and dinner with them. And ditto Trump. Here we have somebody who's old fashioned in terms of the way that he does politics and he's getting stuff done. Um, I No, I, I, I don't think that's it. I think as Laura said, it's about the moment. Um, what, what Biden's done is act radical and talk moderate. Uh, and I'd much rather that way round than people who talk radical and act moderate. Um, he's stepped up to, he's, he's seen that this is a once in a lifetime opportunity to change so much of how America is run, um, and how people's lives work out in America. Um, because we have gone through something and the Americans have gone through something that is just unlike anything we've ever known. Roosevelt took the moment of the depression and so too is Biden saying that this is my moment and he's reassuring enough that Americans trust him to do it um, even though it's the most radical policy of certainly the last 40 years. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. 
Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. We're going to pivot and we're going to move to uh, the land of my birth, the UK. The Prime Minister has confirmed that the UK government will consider the case for the introduction of so-called vaccine passports. Uh, The document could take the form of a vaccine certificate or proof of COVID status, and the NHS mobile app could be modified to carry that information. But Mr Johnson was keen to emphasise the considerable difficulties involved, and it is an idea that he and other ministers have dismissed several times in the past. He said he was still confident that all restrictions in England could be lifted by June the 21st. In Scotland, the First Minister, Nicola Sturgeon, has unveiled what she called a deliberately cautious strategy with a phased reopening of the economy. More on Scotland in just a moment, but first our Deputy Political Editor, Vicky Young, on the debate at Westminster. Up and down the country, every minute of the day. OK, good job. Okay. Thank you. People are getting some protection from the virus that's changed our lives. Three, two, one, shot scratch. This is our way out of COVID restrictions. If everything goes according to plan, this summer dance floors, theatres and concert venues could be packed once more. But should everyone be let through the doors or only those who've been vaccinated? Ministers need to decide soon. We're looking at a novelty for our country. We haven't had stuff like this before. We've never thought in terms of having something that you have to show to go to uh, a, you know, a pub or a theatre. Uh, and, and, and so there are deep and complex issues that we need to explore, ethical issues. Not everyone is waiting for the government review. To protect vulnerable residents, some care homes are asking employees for proof they've had a vaccine. With new staff that that are joining us, we're just going to make it a requirement that they have to have the vaccine. And if they're not willing to, then they can't work for us. It's not just the care sector taking this approach. Other companies want employees to be vaccinated too. It's going to be the protection and safety of their staff and also protection and safety of their customers. So I feel it's a no-brainer, basically. COVID-19 vaccine passports are being tested in the UK as lockdown eases. The government will test a vaccine passport system, a way for people to offer 
proof they have protection from COVID-19 as a tool to help open up the economy. Trials of vaccine passports, also known as certificates, will start at specific events in England, including the FA Cup final. Emma, why are some politicians against this? I mean, it's the same arguments we had around ID cards, really. People feel that, you know, carrying papers isn't a very British thing to do. For me personally, I don't have an ideological problem with vaccine passports. I don't think they'll be done well. Um, There is very little evidence that the government knows how to do this sort of thing and knows how to do it well. And they will be needed for such a short period of time. It just feels like an awful lot of money that will need to be spent on an infrastructure for something that will only really be necessary for less than a year. So I personally just think they could be focusing on other things. What you've got is people like me who don't like this government saying you you won't be able to do it well. And then what you've got on the other hand is people on the hard right who are basically just libertarians and don't want the government in their business at all. Laura, how has the idea of vaccine passports gone down in Canada? Well, not well. I mean, there was a a survey that was just recently done, a poll, and I think 52% of Canadians were okay with it, which is higher than our US counterparts. But there is a history, of course, of being um, back in the day of having to prove that you had certain shots for certain things before you could travel. So it's not as though this is unprecedented. I think that in Canada, generally speaking, we tend to go along to get along uh, and uh, we tend to be more communal. And But it really is coming down now to the U.S. border, right? If the U.S. is saying we're not going to prove that we're vaccinated to cross the Canadian border, that puts a lot of pressure on Trudeau. For the longest time, the Canadians were the ones who were shutting the border to the U.S. in this thing, uh, because it looked like if you looked at a map of Canada and the U.S., it looked like the U.S. was on fire for most of the year compared to our COVID numbers. Well, now, because of Biden's leadership... Canada looks like it's got it has doesn't just look like it has the problem. And now there's US travel warnings to Canada. So it's pretty embarrassing that we've fallen so far behind in the last few months. And so I don't know that Canada is going to be able to push back a whole lot against uh, the US government if it says we're not going to be showing any kind of vaccination passport at the border. I think Canadians will be okay with having a vaccination passport for ourselves ultimately. But uh, that's where the fight's going to be on whether or not uh, Canada can insist that the U.S. citizens show one when they come across. Laura M., if vaccine passports were to come in to uh, the, the U.S. system, would this be a statewide thing? And if so, would, it, would we see a red state, blue state divide? Uh, oh, definitely. The way, the way the U.S. works, unless they want to make it a federal mandate, which I don't see that being a priority for the Biden administration, especially with all of the work that they have to get done trying to make a vaccine passport mandatory. So unless they make it a federal mandate, it's definitely going to fall to the states. And if it falls to the states, it will also definitely be a red state, blue state thing. As you stated, I live in Miami, which is in the beautiful and yet very purple state of Florida. Right now, it's currently red with um, Governor Ron DeSantis as the governor of the state. And so if we try and do it here, it's highly likely they're not going to approve it, which I find ironic because... um, It actually would be a pretty simple process to do in the U.S. 
because we actually do have a lot of paperwork that we have to do. For instance, um, when I've traveled internationally, I have to get immunizations for certain countries anyway, and I have to provide paper proof that I've received those immunizations before I can travel. I have to have some type of an ID or driver's license in order to be able to navigate just being in the state and in the city. And um, here, when you get your vaccine, they give you a card anyway to say whether or not you've gotten your first and or second dose. And as a matter of fact, some of the stationary stores here in the U.S. are uh, promoting free laminations for your vaccine cards, uh, stating that you've been vaccinated. And so ironically, the pieces that will be necessary to put together a vaccine passport are already in place. It's just people have a high suspicion about having another piece of paper and having another database, which I think is where the real fear comes in, um, that states who's vaccinated, who isn't, what are they going to do with that information? Um, if you haven't been vaccinated, is there going to come a time in which they're going to mandate vaccination versus it being a choice, which it is currently? So, um, but to answer your initial question, it definitely would fall to the states. And because it would fall to the states, it would definitely, um, in this current political climate, it will definitely fall along political lines. Um, probably even honestly, as early as 10 years ago, if this had happened, it wouldn't be a political thing for something like this. It would have been a straight shot, no matter whether you were in a blue or, blue or red state. If this was something that the government was trying to do, there would be a little bit of pushback, but it would get done. But honestly, in a post-Trump America, um, it'll definitely fall along state lines in terms of politics. Um, Alex, uh, Jen Psaki said there'd be no federal or centralized mandating of, of passports. So how exactly are you guys going to do things north of the border? Trudeau has a, a much more, as Laura was saying, Laura B was saying, uh, there's a slightly higher uptake in terms of uh, receptiveness of Canadians on on, pass, on having a passport. Um, second, there's been a big push for province-wide uh, databases for e-health, electronic health registries. So there's, there's work underway to... Uh, take the province of Ontario, BC, Quebec, and a couple other provinces and, and uh, create a, uh, a passport for electronic medical records. The problem with this technically is there's, a, there's an issue around a centralized system. We don't have a centralized system. So there isn't really a solution at this point in time. The best we have are fragmented systems that could be centralized under a, through um, API protocols. But I, I don't think this is something that Trudeau ought to ought to do, which will again be very similar to what uh, what was what Laura had just said. It, it will have to be province by province versus state by state. Emma, could you um, lay out for us the Labour Party's position on vaccine passports? Uh, we're on the fence, as always. We just seem to live on the fence at the moment. Basically, Starmer said that he, he he's open to hearing about it, but he's sceptical. Fundamentally, this is a kind of a libertarian line which is drawn between the, the Conservative Party. And looking at the last figures, it was 41 MPs are against this. How many of those actually are Conservatives approximately? Is this going to be a big problem if the test um, is seen as being successful for the government in Parliament? 
uh, yeah, I think it's a big headache. There's this coronavirus research group. They're all called research groups now, and nobody knows why, because they don't do very much research. Basically, the people who've been calling for the UK to unlock much faster are also against vaccine passports, and they have become an increasingly loud pain in um, Boris Johnson's bump. And while he has a majority of 80, if Labour vote against and 41 of his own MPs vote against, he would lose the vote. It is a huge problem for um, Boris Johnson. Although um, Boris Johnson is currently quite popular because, as I say, we are all feeling very optimistic. Let's just speak to just that kind of general optimism um that that the country's going through at the moment the next easing of lockdown happens on april the 12th uh, what types of businesses will be open then hairdressers which everyone's very excited about you can go to restaurants and pubs outdoors um not indoors personal care businesses will be open gyms will be open it, basically it's non-essential shops that are reopening hmm. uh jared governor newsom's issues in in california number one he was kind of lauded at the start of the crisis by by locking the state down quite quickly now people are saying it's a little bit too slow where do you stand with the opening up of california i think it's potentially a disaster in the making although the truth is no one knows and i think in a moment of uncertainty to act with certainty towards the reopening is a very, very risky policy. At the same time, you know, small businesses really are hurting. Newsom, his his political future is in flux. Um, I don't know. It's a, I find this moment one of the strangest moments I've ever lived through. And I mean, that's obvious, but particularly this sense of like not having essentially everyone who is in science in epidemiology being like you need to calm down and to have your elected officials be like yeah 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 we're going forward that's terrifying particularly because this is a global virus uh it's a very weird moment i think it's moving too fast Please, please learn from Ontario. <laughs> I hope Gavin Newsom or somebody's listening in California. We had a premier who saw some pretty good results after the second wave and thought, you know what, why not? Why not open up a little bit more? Why not increase capacity inside restaurants? Why not let the restaurants all get ready for patio season? Why not, why not, why not? And the expert said, because there'll be a disaster in April if you do this. And he went ahead and did it anyway because things seemed pretty good here a month ago. Now we are worse off in Ontario, especially in the Toronto area where I live, than we were at any point in the pandemic. Our lockdown is more severe, essentially, than it's been, except for maybe the very first weeks last March. But it is we are stay-at-home orders for at least four weeks. I had to pull my kids out of school again. So, I mean, it, it feels like it's the right thing to do to get businesses back and get things humming along. But if there is any question about whether or not the, you know, California is ready to do it, I just hope people are listening and don't because our premier took the leap. And as a result, now they're calling it a disaster. He's fearful. 
his, you know, people are absolutely furious with him. I know Gavin Newsom is vulnerable after the whole French laundry thing, but he is going to be more vulnerable if he throws California back into the kind of, you know, traumatic and ridiculous situation that we find ourselves in here in Ontario. Uh, Marseille, would you have a COVID passport if it means that uh, you can walk the streets freely, go into businesses freely, not have a mask and uh, economically you'd be liberated? I'm not trying to be funny, but after Trump, I'll take any passport uh, as an emergency. (laughs) Any passport I need, if I can get it, I'll get it at this point. Yeah, absolutely. And I know that there are some people who don't want to take the vaccine, but, you know, we were just talking about the second wave. Two of my very good friends weren't sick in the, didn't get sick in the first wave, but, you know, they were in Texas as soon as some of those restrictions got lifted. They both got very sick and both of them, one is still in a physical rehab facility. Both of them were intubated and the other one's (laughs) learning how to walk again. So from COVID, I think that it's, this is something that we should take seriously And I know that I don't necessarily believe in interfering in other, you know, uh, people's personal choices not to take the vaccine. But I've just seen it take this, 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 this uh, COVID just take an ugly, take a toll on a lot of people. And it's just not worth the risk, I think. Eric, your civil liberties, having a COVID passport, where do you stand on this issue, sir? Oh, you know, people are making such a big deal of this passport. Laura said earlier about, um, having to have proof of vaccination when you travel. Um, when we traveled to my partner, I traveled to Rwanda and Kenya. We had to have uh, a form that said, I think it was, uh, yeah, that we had yellow fever vaccination. Same thing with the, with, uh, with Peru. So I don't know what the big deal is. It's like, you've, you've proven that you have a vaccination and there are places that won't allow you in because you haven't had it. That's just common, uh, common sense. And it's also respect for each other. So I don't understand what the debate is about, but then, you know, I'm, I'm a liberal Democrat and a lot of people who don't understand me. Emma, the government in the UK says um, that passport will be legal for businesses to ask customers for proof of their COVID status if they wish to, as long as they don't break equalities laws. Uh, has there been any kind of questioning that from um, from the black and ethnic minority uh, community that uh, they could be excluded through equalities laws, not having passports? Um, don't think they would be because they have access to the vaccine. The, the bigger equalities issue is actually generational. And because obviously the younger you are, the less likely you are to have had a vaccine. And there may be issues around age discrimination. And that, I think, is the one of the bigger problems, because obviously young people have had it worse in many ways in terms of the curtailment of their lives. And they've done that to protect older people who are more likely to suffer um, extremely from the virus. There is a real sense, I think, in the UK in particular, of the intergenerational unfairness of how everything works out. And how is the country feeling about uh, European travel? Obviously, uh, the government have banned all holidaying, but there's a real sense that um, with the vaccination rates being as high as they are, and I believe it's something like 50 or 60% of all UK adults have had at least one shot. How likely is it that Britons will be able to fly to Europe and go on holiday at least some part uh, of the summer later this year? 
Um, I don't think the, I don't think there's going to be foreign travel this year. Um, not much. Um, particularly given that Europe is a, um, is really, really suffering at the moment. Um, it's been made pretty clear that it's going to be holidaying at home. Um, I, I've got as far as Suffolk in October, um, which was lovely, but, um, I'm not expecting to leave the country this year. My parents are talking about it. My parents have decided to go on a cruise, which is just like German Central. I don't know what they think they're doing. I think they think because they've been jabbed now, they're immortal. But I frankly am quite happy to stay here and watch this space. There you go, folks. Uh, watch this space. Now, very quickly, uh, we're going to round the show up by uh, me going through to you one by one and you've got to tell me um, and be economical with your answer what you have done or read in the last week which was most awesome Ion we're going to start with you sir tell us something which you've either seen on TV or you've read etc which can lift our spirits sure I'll make two quick recommendations one is the almanac of Naval Ravikant Naval is a guru in Silicon Valley the founder of Angel of Angel List and uh, someone has put together all of his musings and tweets and uh, interviews on podcasts into a handy compendium that is just pound for pound brilliant wisdom being dropped every page and then the second thing I would recommend uh, on TV is if you have access to HBO or HBO Max the excellent uh, multi-part series on the QAnon uh, movement called into Q into the storm it's a maddening kind of rabbit hole to go down but necessary watching uh, just to understand uh, the various strands of this amazingly interesting and terrifying phenomenon that we have to grapple with at some point. Laura M. I'm a little bit late to the movie, but I finally saw the movie A Day in the Neighborhood, which is um, a feature film that was done about Fred Rogers of the of Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. And um, while the movie itself is excellent, um, one of the things I decided to do is go down a rabbit hole about him. So there's two podcasts that I would highly suggest. One is called Finding Fred. Um, and it's a podcast in which they delve into um, Fred Rogers' life, like different aspects of his life and um, how it contributed to him producing his show, um, which was a public access show for children for, I knew at least three decades, it might have been even four, that was featured on PBS. And then there's another podcast about his life but that is more so a tribute podcast and it is called welcome to the neighborhood and they delve into a different part of the lessons that fred rogers dealt with on that show and his philosophies around these lessons so like kindness patience passivism and peace um really interesting work uh, both of those podcasts are really interesting work around this man who spent his career teaching children and in some ways teaching adults how to navigate um, emotions and how to relate to one another um, and I know we deal with politics on this show but a lot of our politics these days are emotional so I think it's a very important lesson to remember Amen, Amen Marseille Butler, what have you read, watched or experienced in the last week which uh, can lift our spirits? I'm on Clubhouse quite a bit. I've been in a lot of rooms that have been good and tense, but I've really been digging into 
um, back into the the space of black uh, black folks that talk about Buddhism and a lot of uh, Buddhists that talk about political resistance and but they're also African American uh, and uh, I would really recommend uh, someone I follow is Sensei Alex and his blog is called Same Old Zen um, and he has some of the most wonderful uh, you know uh, <laughs> essays and, and journal entries in his book uh, and his books on um, not becoming the anger um but being angry and not becoming the anger. And um, it's really like a simple uh, mindfulness techniques that you can use that I found it super beneficial. And the other thing is um, uh, the American hysteria podcast is amazing. And uh, it kind of explains every weird cultural shift, deep dives into cultural shifts and fringe movements in America um, over the past like 50, 60 years. So that's a really good one to check out. And, it, and it's interesting because it's fun. It's it, Some of it's fun. Uh, some of it's, you know, interesting. But if you like rabbit holes like I do, those kind of rabbit holes, you'll enjoy it. Uh, being a black Buddhist, I'm, I'm all over your first suggestion. Right, Eric Marcus. Then we're going to do Laura. Then we're going to do Emma. Then we're going to end up with Jared. you got to be quick. So you got two lines. Eric, go. Quick. All about escape this past week. I watched Easter Parade with Judy Garland, Fred Astaire, and Ann Miller. Ann Miller was extraordinary. Um, and uh, watching old episodes of Mary Talamore. Awesome. Laura Babcock. Uh, well, as you know, Royfield, uh, we're grieving the loss of my mum this week. And so we were looking for total escapism. And uh, so the Formula One Drive to Survive series on, I think it's on Netflix. That's pretty wild if you're, if you like uh, fast cars and, and politics and, you know, sort of all of the Who's your favorite that driver? Who's your favorite driver? Who's your favorite driver? Who's your favorite driver? Of course, the, the, the UK Hamilton guy. Come on now. <laughs> um, and uh, and well, also, not, not uh, I do Latifi love... Or, or Lance Stroll. They're two good Canadians who are in Formula One. Yeah, but you know what? I just, I just love Hamilton. I think he's just awesome. Okay, fantastic. Emma... So I have been re-listening to the single best Radio 4, or show actually, um, but certainly comedy, um, Cabin Pressure. I I don't know if anyone's aware of it, but it is just brilliant and you should seek it out because it's both incredibly funny, has a huge heart and the most extraordinary cast. Um, You've got Stephanie Cole, Roger Allen, Benedict Cumberbatch, Anthony Stewart heads, you know, you just wouldn't get those people in a room together normally. And here they are doing this lovely little Radio 4 comedy. Oh, how quaint. I'll give it a listen. Uh, Gerard, um, over to you, sir. It's not uplifting, but I uh, I like The Serpent on Netflix. Dude, dude, I couldn't be any clearer. It's got to lift off. You're asking the wrong person, Royfield. All right, uh, moving on. Gerard has let us down. I need you to tell us one thing which you've read or you've seen uh, in the last week, which can uh, inform us as to the upside of the human spirit. Something which is bloody nice. Okay. I don't know about bloody nice, but I know bloody. Uh, Invincibles on Amazon Prime is pretty great, but pretty gruesome. But it's fantastic. You know what? I utterly endorse that. I I know nothing about the backstory of Invincible being a a Marvel fanboy, but I found it utterly enjoyable and I'm along for the ride. Is it Omega Man his dad is? 
I believe so. Yeah, well, you know, he's going to turn out to be a real bad and a real wrong and as Brits would say. Uh, Paul Dudridge, um, you're joining us right at the end of the show. We've talked about uh, COVID passports. We've talked about how fantastically well Joe Biden has done in, in, in his first less, just less than 100 days in office. And of course, you're going to agree. You've been um, a solid fan of Joe Biden. You utterly agree that he's done an amazing job, don't you? So what you're saying is you've all been drinking and taking hardcore class A drugs all morning. Is that, is that, is he, that what you're alluding he's to? Not is that your uplifting thing for us uh, <laughs> to, to end the show, Paul, that I you mean, recommend we all zip. take? Yes, oh, that's besides drugs. the point. I'll tell you, the only thing worth watching for me at the moment is the whole of series 16, I think, of First Dates, uh, Channel 4 from the UK. Dude, uh, first spot dates. on. Spot on. Have you seen uh, Teenage First Dates? I haven't. No, I felt uncomfortable. I'm 54. I just I can't watch anything with Teenage in the title. I'll yeah, end up doing time. I, I find that just really, really weird. Those poor kids. I think it's really exploitative. It's a bit prurient, isn't it? Well, isn't isn't it all somewhat purient and exploitative? But when yeah, when but the guy had up, his card denied. Sorry, Emma. If you're a grown up. You- you should never have your first bloody date yeah. on telly. No, it's Where true. Where are the parents? You know, you know what? It's utterly true, but I just fa- found it utterly compelling TV. Uh, for, for the Americans and the Canadians in the audience, one of the most popular programs on British TV is a thing called First Dates, and it and it's blind dates. So you get to know the maitre d' a guy called Fred and the, and the various waiters because it's always in in the same place, and they set up blind dates. And generally, they they, they match people very well. Uh, invariably it's people in their 20s 30s 40s uh but you do get uh even 70 year old first dates and it's utterly compelling heartwarming tv and it's been going for some time now and they've just introduced uh, teenage first dates and, and i was just utterly shocked and compelled when i was watching it this week with my vpn uh on cha- channel four this teenager's card was declining out to pay for his meal and that's on national tv i thought the shame the shame but you know what it made for great drama so you're you're saying paul the thing to lift our lift our spirits is to watch season 16 the first dates is there anything else every time now jared kovac gave you a go and you bloody let me down you're going to do some i did not let you down you cut me off everyone else's recommendations are like horrific compared to what i was going to recommend teenagers on a first date that's uplifting my god no it is it is because i guess so is watching gladiators kill each other in front of an emperor well, that was the height of entertainment back 2,000 years ago. Yeah. My God, all I was going to say is The Serpent on Netflix is really good. No, but I said... That's it. But I, yeah, but I was very clear. I said it had to be something which... Somebody just said teenagers theory. on first dates exploited for national television. Yeah, that's true. That's, that's true. so much worse than what I just... What I was going to recommend. But, you know, you do learn a lot about uh, British culture, about um the the generational differences by watching this show it's very instructive i call it educational tv not even entertainment emma i'm right aren't i first date is educational i mean you're talking to the wrong person i watch love island australia oh god all right emma i'm muting you and i'm gonna have to move on did you throw me out because i watched bad Selling? yeah 
absolutely <laughs> you know what has australia ever given the world and i say to you nothing don't forget folks we do this every thursday on clubhouse why don't you join us why don't you follow us uh hit the little green house which is mid-atlantic and then you'll be notified as we go live and we do this at uh 11 o'clock pacific which is 2 p.m eastern which is 7 p.m uk time uh, and don't forget folks left of center politics is right thinking politics uh, but we do like to break bread and try and convince our right-leaning brethren of their political faults take care everybody see you all again next week for another rip-roaring barnstorming episode of mid-atlantic Zachary Davis, Jim Redfield, Benjamin Jacobs, I'm Eric Marcus, Dan McManamy, Try and I, Free, Redred Lynch, Susan Archidu, Alex Clifford, B.T. Newberg, I'm David Crowther, and I, Liz Covard, will be speaking alongside 40 other great content Seven, creators. Is this will be an event that you don't want to miss. Intelligent Speech is back. Intelligent Speech is an online conference dedicated to connecting the best independent educational content creators with their listeners. This year's Intelligent Speech Conference will be held on Saturday, April 24th, starting at 10 a.m. Eastern Time, or, for our friends across the Atlantic, 3 p.m. London Time. Tickets will be $30, but are available for only $20 as an early bird special. You can get them online at intelligentspeechconference.com slash shop. 